You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. Anarchos without rulers. An anarchist is somebody who wants to create a society without rulers. What gives a ruler the ability... Or rulers, the ability to determine the lives of billions of people. Very simple, inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to share power and share wealth. I'd like to highlight the difference between anarchism, which is a struggle against rulers, and libertarianism, which is a struggle for individual freedom. And we're seeing this little debate play out now in the streets of uh, Australia. And it's quite interesting because libertarianism is totally about individual freedom. It's got nothing to do with collective responsibility, the freedom to exploit other people's uh, labour for your profit, the freedom to strut around unvaccinated, you know, being a danger to other people in the community, uh, the freedom to shout insults at other people because of their uh, ethnic origins, the language they speak, sexual orientation, the list goes on and on. So there is a huge difference between anarchism, which is based on the concept of collective individual freedom through collective responsibility, and libertarianism, this little sideshow we've seen playing out on the streets of uh, Australia, which is based on the concept of individual liberty irrespective of the consequences to the people around you, irrespective of the consequences to your friends, your family, the community and society as a whole. It's a fundamental difference and I find it, and I I really find it obnoxious when somehow people make that mistake, that they think that anarchism is just about individual freedom. Anarchism is a very simple concept. It's about creating societies without rulers, not without rules. It's about having mechanisms by which you can decide on collective rules. It's very simple, very simple concept. It is a combination of individual freedom wrapped up in collective responsibility. And those so-called people, you know, people who think they're anarchists, who somehow think uh, they're getting involved in this uh, debate about individual freedom and anarchism and collective responsibility, who find themselves on the streets giving uh, support 
to these people, I think, really have missed the point, the fundamental essence of anarchism, both historically and practically. My name is Joseph Toscano, and this to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast at any time at 3cr.org.au. And if you want to look at the, my opinions over the years regarding the pandemic and pre-pandemic, all you've got to do is access the podcast. I do advise you not to listen to all of them because you'll go crazy. There's so many of them out there because we've been broadcasting in one form or another, uh, promoting the concept of uh, collective responsibility wrapped up in individual freedom, you know, for over almost four and a half decades. Now, I'm very interested in the way people think because what we have now is an alternative universe, an alternative universe which is based on alternative facts, not that you can actually have alternative facts. Gravity exists. The Earth revolves around the sun, although for thousands of years we thought it was the other way around. Yeah, microorganisms, yes, they do exist, and Jesus doesn't save people. Yes, I know it's heresy. It was quite interesting uh, seeing a lot of uh, fundamentalist uh, religious people, mainly Christians, uh, being involved in this uh, anti-vaccination push. Quite fascinating, really. But you need building blocks to build an alternative universe because obviously there are many alternative universes. I mean, Mr Goebbels of uh, Nazi Germany fame was a very, very good propagandist in terms of building an alternative universe with alternative facts. And and that's what the issue is. And I'll, I'll give you an example of a conversation I had, I think it was yesterday, when we were doing our vigil outside Parliament House, you know, we found a little space for the public housing vigil. I'll give you a little example. It's very simple. Now, I was talking to somebody who's obviously um, thinks that, uh, you know, it's all Bill Gates and, you know, a very rational human being. Now, I think it's wrong to dismiss people who have built an alternative universe as somehow having psychiatric issues. They don't. What they've done is they've built an alternative universe based on their interpretation of what they consider to be facts. For example, I mean, for hundreds of years, the Aztecs used to rip out people's hearts to keep the sun, you know, revolving around the earth. The Celts used to sacrifice people to build a temple or whatever, a religious thing. We used to burn witches up to a few hundred years ago. We had slavery because the people who were enslaved were somehow... Inferior. So obviously, for all human history, we've had people trying to understand the situation they find themselves by building alternative universes. The difference in 2021 is that you could forgive people in the past because of their lack of knowledge of basic scientific uh, principles. It was a little bit harder to forgive in 2021 when most of the alternative facts that have been created out of thin air, a little bit like the Reserve Bank, you know, creates money out of thin air to keep the world economy pumping, pumping round, can easily be dismissed as, you know, 
having no basis in reality. I'll give you an example. This was just a conversation. went over about 20 minutes. Um, I can be polite when I need to be, which is most times. Right. I was told, do you know the COVID-19 genome has never been fully set down? Hmm? I said, oh. I said, oh, I didn't know that. I said, I know there's thousands of independent uh, uh, scientific groups that have actually uh, elucidated the genome and that as the virus changes, it's, you know, we can map it out and we can actually map it out if somebody gets COVID-19 and find out what type of variant they have and who they who have they been in contact with. But I said, oh, all right, okay. And then they said, you know... So this is, this is the brilliance about setting up an alternative universe. What you do is you start off with a fact which is wrong. For a variety of reasons, you accept that this, you know, you accept this statement which is wrong, in fact. Okay? And I was told, well, then you realise, you realise that the vaccines that have been produced aren't real. Oh. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Okay. Hmm. Then we know, then we move on to the thing. And you know Bill Gates, you know, he made a, made a statement once at some talk. The population needs to be around 500 million. I said, oh, that's interesting. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. He was trying to make a point regarding global warming or whatever. Ah, ah. So you realise that this is a uh, government conspiracy to reset the agenda. And that's the key, reset. I said, oh, really? Interesting, I said. That's fascinating. They're going to kill us all, are they? Oh, yeah. Mm, mm. Well, isn't that interesting, I said. Isn't that fascinating? So just an example, just a simple example. Alternative Universes are built on alternative facts. And if people wish to believe in alternative facts, and it's a belief system, like a belief in religion is a belief system, it's no basis in reality, but it's a belief system which people hold and people die for. It's a belief system, fair enough. But when that belief system actually puts other people in danger, then you've got a problem. And that's what COVID-19 has demonstrated. You may have a belief system. And you can keep that belief system to the cows come home, irrespective of the alternative facts that have been created to reinforce your alternative universe. But the reality is a little bit different. And reality has a chance to bite. And the reality is difficult for people to comprehend. In a sea of alternative facts. Now, this isn't about dis this isn't about misinformation. This is about disinformation. Because in order to create a social movement or a political movement or a cultural movement, you need people. And the more disinformation you pump out, the more people you may be able to recruit into your alternative Universe. I mean, all you've got to look at is Nazi Germany and how effective 
their propaganda was. And all you've got to look at is any society, you will find that obviously there are marginalised minorities, like in Australia with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. The alternative facts which were created to justify things that we wouldn't even be able to imagine, justify atrocities. So, theoretically, we entered the rational age with when science began to dominate. It doesn't mean that science is not value three, and it doesn't mean that science can't be manipulated to push certain political, social and cultural agendas, and that happens in any society, but there are so certain fundamental facts which are part and parcel of living on planet Earth. Think about it. So if you're one of these people who are toying with the idea of using alternative facts or to create an alternative universe and wrap yourself in this, thinking that reality won't bite, the fact is COVID-19 doesn't care. It just does not care. See, to a great degree... We are victims of our own success. Now, a lot of people say, oh, Joe, you're a doctor. You've been a doctor for almost five decades. Obviously, you are, you know, you're prejudiced. You know, you're looking at it at a medical model. Well, maybe I am. But unfortunately, in the West and in countries like Australia, we have been victims of our own success. We have seen infant mortality rates and perinatal mortality rates almost drop to zero, unless you're an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. We have seen average life expectancy increase exponentially over the last, you know, four or five decades. We have seen the introduction of a universal healthcare system. We've seen all these things. And to a significant degree, if you look at the historical accounts regarding the role infectious diseases played in the creation of sovereign nation states, to a significant degree, this has been due to three things. One, sanitation. I'll give you an example. I mean, I've been living in Melbourne for almost five decades. I'll give you an example. In the 1880s and 1870s, 50% of children who lived within five or six k's of the Melbourne CBD, in Richmond, Fitzroy, blah, 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 would die of preventable infectious disease. When sewerage was introduced in the 1890s, the mortality rate was dramatically decreased. The second important fundamental point has been the point about microbes, Germs, things we can't see with the naked eye that have a profound impact on the way we live and die. And obviously the history of the human race is a history of pandemics. Societies rising, falling, rising, falling and the role that pandemics do play in that rise and fall of the human race. But, but, and this is the big but, through vaccination, we and obviously vaccination is not a panacea, obviously. 
there are side effects and there are casualties. But with vaccination, we don't see tetanus, which is a terrible way to die. With vaccination, you can go overseas and enjoy yourself as far as hepatitis A and hepatitis B is concerned. We don't see smallpox, which theoretically has been eradicated from the world. We don't see polio in this country. And I'm old enough to remember going to school in the mid-1950s and saying, what's happened to Paul? Well, he's got, he's got polio and he died. It was a risk that we took. It doesn't matter how good the food you eat is, and this is what really I find fascinating, how good the food you eat is and how strong you think your immune system is. The fact is that if you used to catch one of these viruses, and it was all a matter of luck to a significant degree until you know quarantine was introduced, that you could die or have permanent disabilities. And there are still people in Australia who are still alive today in their 60s and 70s who've still got the stigmata of poliomyelitis. Wheelchairs, limps, post-polio syndrome, and the list goes on and on. We don't see typhus. We don't see cholera. We don't see diphtheria. I'm old enough to remember the diphtheria bell. I remember when I first started as a doctor in... Ooh, 1976, as an intern in the uh, Royal Children's Hospital in the, in, the, in the children's ward there, they had a diphtheria bell. What that meant is that we were still getting children coming in with diphtheria because of a lack of vaccination. If the bell went, it meant that some little child somewhere was struggling for breath and you had to race down and put a scalpel, which is very difficult on a struggling, you know, little child, scalpel a little point on their neck, make a hole and stick something in so they could breathe because they'd their airway had been blocked. And we had measles, we had uh, chicken pox, and the list goes on and on. So there's no doubt that vaccination has made a huge difference to life expectancy. And it's the same with COVID-19. Same with COVID-19. And this is what I said at the beginning of the program. It's about individual responsibility and collectivity individual freedom and collective responsibility. Anarchism, as I said before, it's a struggle against rulers exercising power. Not a struggle about getting rid of rules. It's about coming up with a consensus or, you know, a rules-based authority which is based on people through direct democratic means making those decisions. It's not about the freedom to, as I said before, strut around and infect other people because you think that your individual rights are going to be violated if you get vaccinated. It's not about, you know, exploiting other people's labour to enrich yourself. It's not about destroying the environment because you're going to enrich yourself. And the list goes on and on. Think about it. Let's move on. There are other issues, believe it or not. Wages and housing, the wages and housing prices paradox. Ever heard of the paradox? I think it's a lovely word. Paradox. Now, even I have been, look, I'm a little bit, you know, surprised by a lot of the anti-vaccination sentiments. Surprised? Surprised. But I'm even more surprised by the current lack of insight by economists regarding the housing bubbles 
and the lack of wages growth in this country during the pandemic. And I have heard so much crappy analysis in the last week or two that I think I'll become an anti-vaccinator. Such analysis. For example, the relationship between wages growth and labour scarcity has been broken. It doesn't exist. Well, I'll tell you why. It's very simple. Over the last few decades, legislation has been passed through Parliament that makes striking virtually illegal in this country, which gives members of trade unions less rights than somebody who imports a billion... legal rights than somebody who imports a billion dollars worth of drugs who's got the... you know, can uh, not... You know, can, doesn't have to answer questions. If you don't answer questions and you're a member of the CFM MEU, you can face you can face jail time or a ten thousand dollar fine every day. If you're involved in a wildcat strike, ten thousand dollar fine every day. And everything has been done over the last two or three years. I mean, the last two or three decades to discourage people from joining unions, to make union activity illegal, to put huge pressure on unions as far as the activities they're able to uh, carry out and not carry out. And this means that means that labour, you know, wage earners, do not have the collective muscle to bargain. And although there's a labour scarcity, how, what is the cry that's come up from the, you know, people who employ labour? What's the cry? We need more temporary workers. We need to open the gates to temporary workers. Now, obviously, if there's labour scarcity, normally what would happen is wages would rise, as they did after the Black Plague in Europe, People's living standards would increase and they'd be able to purchase more and keep the economy pumping round. But when you've got the ability to have a political system that continues to refuse to educate young people as far as a skill-based economy is concerned because it's easier to you know, poach somebody from some other place in the world and it's easier to bring people in to do work at low wages in a non-unionised setting, well, obviously the nexus between wages growth and scarcity is broken, and it's artificially broken. It's not broken because there's no correlation. There's always been a correlation, and there'll always continue to be a correlation. But if you've got rules and legislation in place which makes it illegal to strike outside enterprise bargaining agreement period, which makes it hard to recruit members which treats trade unionists as criminals, which doesn't allow organisations to collectively bargain and is dependent on individual bargaining with an employer and there's nothing more unequal than the relationship between an employer and employee who needs that money in order to survive in the big world, then you've got a problem. So don't give me this, what I call, alternative universe... (laughs) Because the alternative universe is not just part and parcel 
of people who are against vaccination and who you know are concerned about mandates. But the alternative universe is all also part and parcel of the type of economic system that dominates every aspect of our everyday existence. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscar. I'm hosting this program. You can access the Anarchist World this week on a podcast, 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. You can go to the uh, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest YouTube channel, PIPCP, uh, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. If you want to join Public Interest Before Corporate Interest, and I will make a uh, bit of a call for a some more members later on in the program. You can go to pipsipibci.net. You can go to the Anarchist Media Institute webpage, anarchistmedia.org, to see the uh, activities lined up for um, Ballarat on the 3rd of December. You can, uh, it just goes on and on. You can always leave a message on 0439 395 489. No point ringing up and not leaving a message. I, I get tons of phone calls and I respond to people who leave a message. 0439 395 489. If you're not happy with that, don't call. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. The new radical. Yes, we have a new radical. And the new radical is based on this interesting concept that's always been with, with us which is part and parcel of the private investment for private profit dream. The private investment for private profit wet dream you wake up with in the morning. It's very simple. The new radical is all about individual freedom. No collective responsibility. So the new radical is actually not the new radical the new radical is the old radical, the 18th and 19th century radical that wanted no intervention in order to stop individuals, no regulations, to stop individuals amassing wealth at the expense of everybody else. Quite an extraordinary little beast, the new radical. Unfortunately, there's nothing new about the new radical. It's all about the old radical. Go back to the good old days when the government was there, the state was there to protect the interests of the powerful. Forget about all the revolutions and revolts and the tens of thousands not hundreds of thousands of deaths which occurred so we can enjoy many of the things we take for granted in Australia today. For example, a social security system may have holes in it, but we still have a social security system. A universal health care system which was introduced by the you know, the loathed Whitlam government that's loathed by conservative and reactionary forces in this country. And the list goes on and on. But those battles now seem to be irrelevant because over the last four decades, during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation, revolution, and I didn't see any of these people that I saw in the last few days out in the streets of Australia, never saw them battling the deregulation revolution or the corporatisation revolution or the globalisation revolution or the privatisation revolution, they're rubbing their hands in glee, thinking they've all become new capitalists. But what I find fascinating is the battle that's going on currently between divided nation, commonly known as One Nation, the United Australia Party, commonly known as Clive's little private 
hang out. A few members of the Liberal Party and a few National Party members in Parliament, these are parliamentary members at the federal level, who are fighting tooth and nail against discrimination. Tooth and nail. You see, there's an election coming round the corner and a lot of these minor parties have got a problem. There's a lot of them now vying for support from the 5%. I'll say the 5%ers out there who are concerned about COVID-19 mandates and vaccination and a few other things. And I think they've got a ready market as far as support is concerned. So they've thrown their support behind this movement because they think it will be politically advantageous to their re-election prospects. But there's a problem. The good old United Australia Party, which is nothing more than a front for the Liberal National Party because its preference streams always end up in the pockets of the Liberal National Party, not in the pockets of One Nation or Mr Cantus Party or any other you know, conservative reactionary party out there. The fact is there's a big battle. And the fringe elements of the Liberal National Party understand that this is their, this is their constituency, which has been whittled away whittled away by the United Australia Party. And obviously the United Australia Party is there to ensure that poor old Clive continues to dominate and continue to keep his licences to exploit this country's mineral resources. So they're out there fighting, fighting for the votes. But you know what? A lot of the people I've been meeting lately don't vote. Are involved in these campaigns, don't vote. They don't trust government the government, any government, the electoral process. So get ready for a battle royale has the conservative reactionary vote splinters. And in the wings is the child, the love child, the Institute of Private Affairs, commonly known as Institute of Public Affairs, the Liberal Democrats. We've got two seats in the uh, Victorian Legislative Council who run under the slogan, if you're into billboards, which I'm not, but you do see them, freedom, not fear. I mean, the Liberal Democrats, what are they, not Liberal Democrats, what do they call themselves? I've forgotten. Yeah, Liberal Democrats, yeah. This is the political face of the Individual Freedom Brigade. The people who manipulate, or not manipulate, but dominate the editorial opinion in in Murdoch's news sheets, unless, unless, unless it interferes with Murdoch's returns, okay? They can say what they like, as long as they don't touch on the Murdoch empire, as long as they continue to expand the Murdoch empire by promoting um, alternative facts to create an alternative universe, which has very little to do with the current reality. So Liberal Democrats, they run on the platform of freedom, not fear. Now, don't, by any stretch of the imagination, think that these people have anything to do with collective responsibility. This is a party. This is the intellectual rump of the current movement we are seeing. It's their intellectual rump. It's the engine house. It's the engine house which has got the money, which has been promoting a lot of this um, 
alternative universe garbage. It's got the money and the resources and the people in power uh, to promote this because they've captured most of the Liberal Party and some of the National Party. And it's all about individual freedom, not collective responsibility, the individual freedom to do what you like, irrespective of the consequences to the people around you, whether it's your friends, whether it's your family, whether it's your community, whether it's your nation state. Individual freedom. Get rid of the rules, get rid of the regulations, get rid of state intervention in providing essential services, privatise everything that can be privatised, including the social security system, privatise the public education system, privatise the public health system, put it all in the hands of the private sector, but make sure that the private sector has a uh, conduit to the Treasury. Because the fascinating thing about this privatisation brigade, you know, the Liberal, the Liberal Democrats, you know, leading the charge, the fascinating thing is that they rely on taxpayers' money to fund their activities. That's right. They rely on taxpayers' money to fund privatised aged care, to fund privatised education, to fund privatised healthcare, to fund privatised uh, infrastructure. And the list goes on and on. Give me a break. Fear? Freedom, not fear? Look, I'm fearful. I make no apologies. There are a lot of things that I'm fearful about. I'm fearful about the type of planet we'll have in 10 years' time. Well, it doesn't really matter to me, personally. I'm on the end of my uh, wick. I'm an old bloke. I've got my three score and ten. Thank you, Bible. You know? But, but, I believe in collective responsibility. I believe I have a collective responsibility to do something about the current climate emergency. I don't see it as a issue where I can make a buck and make no changes as we see in our current uh, government. So think about it. Private, you know, collective responsibility with individual freedom. You can have both, but you can't have one without the other. And that's the beauty of being an anarchist. You listen to The Anarchist World this week broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, I've got a question. Yep, it's a question. Not a riddle, but a question. How many of you parents and grandparents out there, and obviously there may be a few listening to the Anarchist World this week, maybe one or two, are willing to sacrifice your children? It's never their children. That was the history of World War I. It's always your children. To fight the good fight against the yellow peril. Now, a lot of people like to think that, to frame this as a battle between freedom and authoritarianism. You know, freedom and authoritarianism. The yellow peril. Mr. Dutton, Defence Minister, he's got his finger on the button. Oh, no, we don't have any nuclear bombs. Well, he's got his finger somewhere. I won't say where. I'm not rude. You know, the yellow peril. And it's good to see finally the Labor Party has called him out. I mean, are you willing to sacrifice your children? Are you willing to see Darwin reduced to nothing? If push comes to shove? 
because we're not protected by isolation anymore. Every Australian city is in range of nuclear missiles. We're not protected. Isolation, physical isolation no longer protects us. So are you willing to go to war for superpower? To hang on the coattails of another superpower? To push an agenda that really has very little to do with what's happening in this country? Are you willing to support a government? And then we've seen successive governments in this country being elected, uh, pushing the yellow peril thing from the gold rushes in the 1850s right through to Federation, the introduction of the White Australia policy, right through to World War One, World War Two, post-war immigration, populate or perish, but we needed to populate with the right type of people. But we don't care now, we just need to populate. Think about it. Are you willing to make that sacrifice for the good of the small section that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication in this country? Are you willing to make that sacrifice to ensure the current government's ideological agenda continues irrespective of the harm to this community? Yeah, it's one thing going and challenging a bully, but if you're going to challenge a bully, you'd like to make sure that you've got a chance of a a little bit of a victory because the David and Goliath, you know, parable is one that doesn't happen exceptionally often, especially in a nuclear age where whole civilizations can be eliminated in the blink of an eye. It's political stupidity. Now, Mr Andrews, the Victorian Premier, there are not many people in this country that are as stupid as he is. Now, the Victorian Premier has just given a lifeline to the Alternative Universe Brigade. A lifeline. At the very moment they were dying, because of increasing vaccination rates among Australians, at the very moment they were becoming irrelevant, before the intervention of the, you know, the divided nation and the united whatever party again and the liberal whatever they're called, Democrats. At the very moment, he introduces draconian legislation the Victorian Parliament. Now, we've had a pandemic for the past two years. I'm very comfortable, and I've said this since March 2020, and all you've got to do is listen to podcasts and you'll see that my position has not changed. And I've currently said and I continue to say that in a pandemic, decisions regarding health issues should be left to the chief health officer in consultation with the group, the health group, which advises him. They should not be left in the hands of politicians who may ignore health advice in order to shore up their political alliances. Very simple. And, I, and, I, and when Mr Andrews was given 12 months extraordinary powers by Parliament, I said, and I continue to say, that 
This type of debate should be carried at every four weeks and there should be a limitation of four weeks on the type of conditions which are placed on people to deal with a health emergency. Not a political emergency, not a cultural emergency, not a social emergency, but a health emergency. That every four weeks things should be reviewed by parliamentary representatives and decisions be made to either extend it for another four weeks or to stop. Now this is a total overreach. And if there's anybody who's got any political influence on Mr Andrews, it's about time that he was advised to cut this lifeline to the Alternative Universe Brigade. Because if he doesn't, they'll continue to grow. Because what we are seeing is a coalition of the Alternative Universe Brigade with uh, far-right groups whose agenda is diametrically opposed to an anarchist agenda and a coalition of minor conservative reactionary political parties that have got people in Parliament who are exploiting this situation to increase their membership. The situation will escalate until this issue is resolved. And Mr Andrews has only himself to blame for the current situation we find ourselves in. At the very moment, where Australia has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world, where restrictions should be lifted, where the chances of infection dramatically decrease after 85% of the population is double vaccinated, where people are, you know, shouting for a third vaccination. At that very moment, he is stupid enough and his advisers are stupid enough in the Labor Party, what's left of it, to introduce this type of legislation. And to be against the legislation is not to be part of the Alternative Universe Brigade. But unfortunately, you know what they say, if you lie down with dogs, can't complain when you wake up with fleas. Let's move on. Strain. Strain, strain, strain. Now, I'm particularly interested in the concept of public housing because the response to the privatisation of public housing around the country, especially in Victoria, has been minimal, inconsequential. And I think anybody who's seen the escalation of housing prices in the last 12 months, 22% on average in a 12-month period, has understood that housing prices, to a significant degree, are determined by interest rates, especially when you have a housing market which is dominated by an investor class which receives tax advantages for owning more than one home. Now, I was educated yesterday that Canada has the same system. And the idea about that is that if you give the rich a tax advantage, they will, you know, build new homes. But the fact is that you can get negative gearing on an old home. So it really negates that. It's not just on new property. It's on old property. 
So as housing prices escalate, and the average house price in Sydney is over a million dollars and almost 900000 in Melbourne and obviously in other states it's escalated dramatically, it becomes a burden, a burden on society. Not the economy, but society. Now, I shouldn't be giving this advice because I'm actually giving this advice to the Private Investment for Private Profit Brigade, the Capitalist Brigade. Now... Our economy, to a significant degree, is based on exports and local consumption. Now, countries like China, which had a boom, economic boom because of exports, is now concentrating more and more on local consumption because they understand there is a limitation to the export boom. Now, in our country, we've got a dilemma. We've got a huge economic dilemma especially if interest rates rise. And those of you who think the Reserve Bank sets interest rates, well, the Reserve Bank may set interest rates, but privately owned banks, and they hold the great majority of mortgages, all the mortgages, basically, whether it's a small bank or a large bank, set their own interest rates depending on their borrowing costs. And if their borrowing costs escalate because they're not getting free money from the government anymore, then that borrowing cost will be offloaded to whoever borrowed that money, whether it's for a business venture, a personal loan, a credit card, housing mortgage, and the list goes on and on. Because there's been no wage growth, and there will be very little wage growth in this country, while the trade union movement is is uh, basically banned from striking and withdrawn their labour, except during a, you know some very, very small periods, and we continue to rely on overseas labour to fill in the gaps because we're not willing to increase wages for workers in this country, then we've got a problem. Because people will not have disposable income. You like that fancy word? disposable income to invest and buy crap in the country. It's all about disposable income. What's that? Well, disposable income is the money that's left in your pocket after you pay for your mortgage or your rent, you pay for all the things that you need to pay for, you know, all the things that you need to pay for to to survive, your rates if you own something, you know, your mortgage, your rent, your food, your little holiday, this and that, all right? And if you've got disposable income in Australia, wow. Wow. We have laws in this country which reward those with disposable income. Negative gearing laws, franking credit laws which reward people for holding shares. And the list goes on and on. Corporate welfare. Yes, corporate welfare is the biggest... Huge welfare bill that we pay to the private sector. So disposable income, you got it. You can then invest, and if interest rates are low, hey presto, the investor borrows money because they've got a history. The twenty to thirty year olds down the road with a, a job and no investment, well, they don't have history. They're not going to be able to borrow any money, are they? Unless mum and dad can help them out. They're not going to be able to borrow any money. So what you have is you you have an investment class which dominates the housing market. This increases prices. So how do we break 
this nexus? How do we break this relationship between interest rates, housing prices and investment-friendly laws which allow investors to dictate the prices of residential property? I sound like an economic guru, don't I? As I said before, I shouldn't be telling this to the uh, private private investment for private profit group because they may steal the idea. No, they won't because it actually will actually not benefit them. It's very simple. Housing stock, limited. And it's limited because there's no competition. It's all about the private sector. Even in the so-called public housing sector, it is now dominated by the social community, affordable, you love all those words, social community, affordable, lovely words, housing sector, which is basically privately owned housing sector, which provides housing for people who you know, haven't got a great income. Now, public housing was introduced for one very good reason. After the end of World War II, people came back home that had fought for their country and were homeless. That's right, homeless. And there was increasing pressure on state governments, especially to provide public housing. Housing for people who could not afford to enter the private housing market. And by the 1970s, 15% of Victorians, which I'm, is the state I'm familiar with, were housed in public housing. Today, in 2021, 50, almost 50 years later, it's less than 2%. So what does a strong public housing sector do? A strong public housing sector does a number of things. It provides... it competition in the housing market between the public sector and the private sector. When you get competition, what happens is that prices tend to decrease. Unless you've got a cartels, which we have in most of the private sector, prices decrease. And this is the way it would work. There's a limited number of houses that are needed for people, right? You've got a strong public housing sector which is open to anybody who cannot afford the deposit for a private house, okay, where rents are fixed at 25% of income, and that's the key, 25% of income, then what happens is that people who are paying extraordinary rents, 40, 50, 60% of their weekly income in rent, can then move across to public housing. This means that's less people needing private rental accommodation This means prices fall at the lower end of the market. This means that people who want to buy a house who are on a medium income, say a couple that earns $2,000 a week, which is not a huge wage in 2021, can then enter the private housing market. So it's a win-win situation. Now I can hear you say, Joe, 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 you're dreaming. You're dreaming, like the castle, you know, the film The Castle. You're dreaming, Joe. Well, maybe I'm dreaming, but this is simple. This is simple arithmetic. If you allocate the $6 to $7 billion of money which will be raised by stamp duty this year, and stamp duty is the tax you pay when you buy a home, whether it's a new home or an old home, especially an old home, occasionally you can get a stamp duty reduction when you buy a new home off the plan, all right? That's supposedly to encourage you to buy a new home. If you allocate that to the public housing sector, say you allocate 20% for repairs and ongoing um, administration charges, 
The other 80% for built either spot purchasing houses and units around the state or building new ones. Most likely spot purchasing makes more sense. What would happen is you could get rid of the urgent waiting list and the public housing waiting list in one year. You could actually house 100,000 people every year. Within a decade, you'd be housing a million people in public housing. And what's so great about public housing? The problem is today that public housing has basically become the last refuge of people who are totally desperate for accommodation. What public housing does, especially spot purchase public housing, what it does is it gives you access to permanent accommodation, permanent accommodation for 25% of your income, which means that your kids can go to the same schools, the same sporting clubs, form relationships with the people around them and they don't have to be dragged year in and year out around the place. And also it, what it means is if you only pay 25% of your income for your housing costs, it means you've got much more money available to buy goods and services. So small businesses win out. Even large businesses win out. It's a win-win situation. This is not about blood in the streets. This isn't about creating an alternative universe. This is about I had a dream. This is a practical, simple solution which needs political will. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I've been hosting this program. If you'd like to join public interest before corporate interest, which is all about putting the interests of the public before the interests of the corporate sector, it's all about collective responsibility before individual freedom, but a combination of both, then I suggest very strongly that you look at the public interest before corporate interest website, pipsy.net. We're very keen to register as a state-based political party in Victoria before the next state election at the end of November in 2022. It was our aim to register as a federal political party, but unfortunately, well, fortunately for the government, the rules have been changed just before the election, so you need 1,500 members to register as a federal political party. That keeps those in power in power. You can go to the podcast. The podcast is 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. That's Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. You can leave messages on 0439 395 489. That's 0439 395 489. You can go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. You can go to the Anarchist Media Institute website. Don't forget the 3rd of December in Ballarat to celebrate Eureka Day. And don't forget the 5th of December here in Melbourne to celebrate the West Papua office at 838 Collins Street. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program has been broadcast across Australia from the studios of Community Radio 3CR, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Listen in next week to the Anarchist World this week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brain
wash my hands. Oh, Lodger! been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.